I want to talk to you about the ones who got away. In this episode, you're going to hear from a few of the women who survived three of the worst serial killers in American history. Bobby Joe Long, he was responsible for the deaths of 10 women before the state of Florida executed him in 2019. Ted Bundy, he took the lives of 36 women that we know of. We can also thank the state of Florida for taking him out of the world in 1989. That's the thing about Florida, isn't it? The Sunshine State gives us a lot of killers, but it also takes a lot away. And I can say that because I actually graduated from Miami Beach Senior High School. I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. Before we get started, we need to thank one of today's sponsors. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All right, now I want to introduce you to Lisa McVeigh Noland, the lone survivor of Tampa Bay Predator Bobby Joe Long. On November 3rd, 1984, Lisa was riding her bike home after working a double shift at a Krispy Kreme in Tampa. It was around 2.30 a.m. when Bobby Joe snatched her off her bike and changed her life forever. She was 17. No, I don't work a double shift, but I was afraid to go home because if I had to go home, I had written my suicide the night before. I was going to end my life. I was tired of being abused. Um, my boss asked me to work a double shift, and I did. Got permission from my grandmother and her boyfriend. And on the way home at 2.30 in the morning, I rode a bicycle. That was my mode of transportation. Uh, and again, and I get skeptics. Well, why ride a bike at 2 o'clock in the morning? Why not in the afternoon? I have every right to ride a bike at 2 o'clock in the morning, as I do at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I was proceeding down uh, from the uh, Krispy Kreme donut shop off of uh, Waters and Florida Avenue. My normal route was Waters to Rome, Rome over Slide down to Wellswood. I lived directly across from River Hills, uh, or I'm sorry, from uh, Tampa Catholic School, High School, uh, 1531 River Shores Way. And I still remember the address as if I was still living there. Um, as I'm proceeding past Roman Slide, I looked at a church. I see a car, red car, didn't know what make and model it was, sitting in the middle of the parking lot. Why I thought that struck me odd, I don't know. Still had it back in my mind of the killings that were going on. Um, as I turned my head to proceed forward, I did realize how dark it was. I'm like, wow, what if someone reach, would reach, reach out and grab me? And right as I said that, I turned, there was a van uh, parked uh, south, that front of the van, it was like a VW bug van. Um, that's when my encounter, Robert Geelong, occurred. Um, he, so my bike, my bike went one way and I went another way. He came behind me, grabbed me and put the gun to my left temple. Uh, the left temple, uh, when I felt the steel cold barrel of that gun, very familiar. My grandma's boyfriend used to put a gun in my head every time he, uh, he molested me for three years. It was nothing new to me. I was very calm, to be honest. I mean, I screamed at first and I said, I yelled out, I said, God, whatever you do, just don't kill me. I'll do whatever you want. Proceeds to drag me to his car, same car. I was ordered to, uh, at knife point and gunpoint to remove all my clothing, and I did. Um, everything he asked me to do, I did. Um, there was also uh, an incident in the car before we took off. I had to perform a, um, a sex act on him. We won't go into details. Um, after that, uh, he, uh, he had bound me, tied me, blindfolded me. Take your wrist, put, her, put a string around it, tie it. When you release it, what happens gets loose, right? I did that with my jaw. I wanted to be able to see beneath my blindfold. Now I understand I was 17, not realizing I'm going to my survivor mode. My survivor mode. I was gonna do anything I can to get out of the situation. And understand again, night four, I was wrote my suicide note. I was going to kill myself. Now I'm trying to survive. I'm gonna get out of this some way, somehow. 
He proceeds to drive off. I'm very good with sense of direction. He headed north on Rome. He took a right on Sly, which was east, and headed to the interstate. Windows were down. I could hear uh, the knocking noise of a car that needed a tune-up. I could see a green digital clock. Once you go to the interstate, you all know the window's down. What happens? The velocity, the wind changes. It, it gets faster. I kept seeing something shine in my eye. I couldn't think of what it was. Um, he proceeded about 20 minutes, not knowing where he got off at. At this time, I don't know where I'm at. I still have no clothes on. I'm laid back in the seat. My clothes are on the carpet, not realizing, you know, the carpet's being transferred to my clothing at that time, moving my feet around. We're proceeding to where he was going to take me. I did not realize um, he was taking me to an apartment building. It was a, like a, a strip plaza. Uh, when we got to the destination, all I saw was trees. And I start reciting the Lord's Prayer. This is it. This is going to be it. Next thing I know, he tells me, he orders me to get dressed. I'm about dumbfounded about it. Anybody else could be, get dressed. I get dressed. I wanted to leave clues behind. At that time in my life, I was on my monthly cycle. And I ripped my tampon out. And I threw it into the car seat for, to save my life. Blood match, right? I used to watch a lot of crime shows back there. Madden P.I., Airwolf, Ams 12. Um, he proceeded to escort me out of the car and I'm walking towards the trees. I'm thinking we're in a wooded area. And next thing you know, my hand's on a, a steel handle of a door. The window, I could see underneath my blindfold, the window was one window pane with little slats to break it down like to eight different window panes. I proceeded inside. As I'm looking down, I could see it's lit up inside, you know, from the ground. It was a green carpet, predominantly green, green, black, red, white specks in it. Uh, got to the top floor, 19th floor. I counted the floors to see how many floors I got to run down if I was able to escape. I knew he was Caucasian at the time. After he got to the, the apartment, because he reached for the door handle, and he's white, left-handed, carried a revolver in his left hand. Proceeded to walk in. I was ordered to undress. Um, stood there, and I don't know if he did this or not. I heard the sound of uh, bullets falling into a trash can, some sort, but something metal. Proceeded to escort me to the bathroom, and he gives me a shower. The next 26 hours, I was brutally raped by this monster. And I'm going to put it out there. It's not molestation. It's not sexual assault. It is rape. I endured that for 26 hours. Yes. I survived. Got him caught. Um, at the moment of the time, uh, he did try to feed me at one time. It was 11 o'clock. I think the next night, um, Airwolf had came on. I was. He took me to the living room. He had me dressed. Tried to feed me. Couldn't eat. Think he's might poison me. I, I don't know, right? Paranoia? I don't know. Um, common sense. Uh, Airwolf was on. Uh, at the time, a news break came in and said there was a 17-year-old Lisa Rhodes missing. Rhodes was spelled R-H-O-D-E-S. That was named my, my grandma's boyfriend. I was always to call him dad in public. Um, when that came on, he shut the TV off, and then it became surreal knowing that someone was looking for me. I started crying, frantically crying. He put the gun to my head and said, if you don't stop crying, it'll force me to kill you. Stop crying. Um, the time came when he asked me what he would do with me. Uh, we had had a conversation at one point in time why he was doing this to me. Um, he had mentioned that he, was, he had raped other women and not that it made it okay. And um, I said, why are you doing this to me? He goes, because just to get back in women in general. So when the time came to release me, what did I do? Reverse psychology. That's what I would call it. 
I said, I'll be your girlfriend. I do whatever you want. It's unfortunate how we met. We don't have to tell anybody how we met. Let's do this. He said, no, I can't keep you. He asked me the area of town I lived in. I said, Hillsborough and Rome. Goes to a gas station, gets gas, goes to an ATM machine. I scan my blindfold, same method I used to make it loose. I could see a silhouette of him, kind of stout, uh, white t-shirt, blue jeans, uh, brown hair. I'm actually, I saw the brown hair in the shower, but uh, I saw him through my hands at one time. Uh, actually, he actually put my hands on his face. You'd be surprised what you could see, hear, smell, and taste when your sight's taken. I used that for my benefit. He had a pockmarked face, small mustache, small ears. I felt like he had just had his hair groomed as if he had a haircut. Um, he proceeded to go to the interstate again as where I was trying to see where I was at. And that's why I saw the Howard Johnson and the Quality Inn, Fowler and Interstate 275. I was a smart little 17 year old, right? Pat on the back here, right? Um, he proceeded to Hillsborough Rome. He passes Hillsborough Rome and he must have invented some new curse words. He was real aggravated, very loud, very mad, cursing at me. I lied to him. I asked him very calmly and I said, where are you at? Menden Hall in Hillsborough, great. I went to Menden Hall Elementary, so I knew where I was at. Take a U-turn, Hillsborough and Rome's at the light. He actually listened to me. Somehow, some way, throughout my contact with him, I'm sure I gained his trust somehow. I mean, come on, look at me, right? Gained his trust, right? Um, he proceeded to go past uh, the lights. He goes into cut-off turn lane, uh, go eastbound. He cuts over the westbound lanes. He's now north. He drives into the old eye, out eye, outlet, eye optical outlet building. And behind there, there was a huge tr oak tree housed in an island, you know, with a curb. Pulls in, uh, I'm blindfolded, still, still tied, I'm dressed. He tells me to describe him to the police. He thought I was going to the police, which I was, I did, um, of what I thought he, who, who he looked like or, or his features and all that. To describe him other than what I thought he was. He proceeds to get me out of the car. He escorts me to the, um, I'm gonna demonstrate, is that okay? He escorts me to the uh, the curb, and I'm, I'm got a blindfold on. My feet hit the curb, and I almost fell over. He tells me, "Whispers in my ear." He tells me, "Stand for five minutes, and you're free to go." In law enforcement, and being 17 years old, five minutes is an eternity. It felt like 30 hours. I finally got brave enough to say, "Wait a second, let me go get his tag number." It was too late. The minute I took my blindfold off and I look at this beautiful, gorgeous tree and it's four o'clock in the morning, next morning, the first thing that came to my mind was branches of life. You're going to be okay. Second thing I thought of, run. I ran back to my grandma's house. I knew I could get help there. Uh, unfortunately, for the next five hours, I was uh, beaten by my grandma's boyfriend, asking all kinds of questions where I've been at. My grandmother finally stood up, called the police and told him I'd been home. And I had made a story up that I'd been kidnapped. And that's what got Tampa Police Department's attention. Um, but the fourth time after being at the police station, I had called the police station. This is very interesting here. Um, I have some news for Sergeant Larry Pinkerton. God bless, us, bless him, he's retired now. I still have contact with him. Um, stating that I have some information about the serial killer. My information I'm gonna share with you is as I'm in my house, my grandmother's house with her boyfriend, I walked by a television that was sitting on a table, 19 inch black and white, and I heard another body had been found. 
The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. You got instincts. Listen to them. They're telling you something's not right. And I said, oh my goodness, my abductor's a serial killer. When I got to meet with Larry, Larry Pinkerton again and tell him that we ended up having to call the sheriff's office before our task force uh, to get them started on the possibility that I was the only remaining live victim that he had. And as a result, here I am. Lisa is now a deputy with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office in Tampa. Her attacker, Bobby Joe Long, also had a pretty screwed up childhood. Unlike Lisa, he used it for evil and not good. He was born in Canova, West Virginia in October 1953. He shared a bed with his mother until he was 13 years old. Round about the time he stopped sharing a bed with his mother, he met his wife, Cynthia. They married from 1974 to 1980. Now, during that time, they had two daughters. The same year his youngest was born, he was in a serious motorcycle accident and had to be hospitalized for weeks. He was never what you might call a nice man, but after his accident, he evolved into an abusive sexual sadist. In 1983, he mailed pictures of his genitalia to a 12-year-old girl. Can we just break that down for a minute? This is 1983, so he had to first strip, pose, and take those pictures with an actual camera, then drop the film off at a developing booth, then pick it up, sort through a stack of photos to find the best shots that really showed off his package, find a stamp, and an envelope and actually mail the whole thing to a 12-year-old along with a creepy letter. Wow. The poor child who got this letter immediately took it to the police and he was arrested. But he was out right away and back on the streets with an even more twisted plan. He scouted the Tampa classifieds for sales so he could show up like a prospective buyer and violate the female owners. The police say he was responsible for more than 50 attacks, earning himself the nickname the Classified Ad Rapist. In March 1984, he graduated to murder with Artis Wick. Two months later, he struck again and again and again. Seven more women lost their lives to him before he abducted Lisa McVeigh off her bike. He went on to kill two more women before Lisa's description of him and his car got him arrested at a movie theater near his house in Tampa on November 16, 1984, less than two weeks after he abducted Lisa. Remember that red carpet in his car she mentioned earlier? It was found on all ten of his victims, which is how the police were able to link them all to him. In April 1985, he was sentenced to death. His last meal was roast beef, bacon, french fries, and soda. He got the needle on May 23, 2019. He was 65 years old. Lisa was in the front row. She said she wanted hers to be the last face he ever saw. Here's what she had to say after he took his last breaths. Bobby DeLong, people asked me what I would say to you if you were standing in front of me, and here's my answer. Bobby DeLong, thank you. Thank you for choosing me instead of another 17-year-old little girl. The reason why I say thank you now is because I have forgiven you for what you have done to me. Had I not forgiven you, I might as well be in my own prison without walls. My life changed forever and for the better. I chose not to remain a victim. I chose to live. I end my statement with one more thing, Bobby DeLong, to hear me loud and clear. Hear my, my roaring voice. May God have mercy on your soul. Long overdue. His daughter donated his brain to traumatic brain research at Boston University. 
Who knows? Maybe he'll actually do a little bit of good for someone else now that he's gone. Now, don't go anywhere. Coming up next are three of the women who survived Ted Bundy right after this. Next, I want to tell you about three of only a handful of women who survived one of the most horrifying and prolific predators in America. I'm talking, of course, about Ted Bundy. In January 1978, Ted was responsible for taking the lives of dozens of women in Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. He was also an escaped prisoner. He ran all the way to Florida where his bloodthirsty frenzy resulted in the infamous attack on the Chai Omega sorority house at Florida State University in Tallahassee. This is Kathy Kleiner, one of the three women who lived to talk about what happened that night. That night was um, very um, bizarre. It's, um, it's something that I'll never forget. I was um, asleep in our room. We lived in a dorm, uh, in a dorm style room in the sorority house, Chi Omega. And as you entered the, the front door, there were stairs that left, led up to the first, second floor landing. At that point, if you look to the side, left and right, you could see two hallways that the uh, rooms were in for each of the girls that lived in the house. Um, that night when Ted came up, he went into Margaret's room, which was the first room on the left, and attacked Margaret and raped her and strangled her and then put the sheets up to her neck to make it, make it look like she was sleeping. He then went in and attacked Lisa, and he did the same thing. He um, actually bit her at that point, uh, which ended up being um, a way that he was convicted because it was definitely him that made the bite marks, which meant he was in the house that night. When he came into our room, I had um, a roommate, Karen. We were asleep in our, in our beds. The room was rather small. We had two twin beds on each side of the room. Also, we had a small trunk, like a, um, we used to call them footlockers, just a small green trunk on the floor. We could keep our books and some of the other stuff um, on top of it. Next to the, um, the trunk on each side, there was about three feet, which um, allowed you to get around the bed. So that night, I um, asleep in my bed, in my bed, and I heard the door open, and it kind of woke me up a little bit. So the next thing I hear is some noise, the trunk being moved and, and um, someone fell over it and made a lot of noise. So then I woke up and um, just in time I saw the figure, the silhouette of a, a big, um, just a black shadow. And as I was looking at it, I was laying on my left side. As I was looking at it, I um, saw this figure dressed in black, all black raised his arm up over his head. He had a log in it that he had picked up, a piece of firewood. He struck me in the face with so much force um, that it, it shattered my jaw. It broke my, uh, my, cut my cheek open until it was almost back to my ear. Also, I almost bit my tongue off. Um, once he attacked me, he went to my roommate, Karen, attacked her. Um, heard that I was still alive, and since Bundy didn't leave any victims alive, I believe he came to me to go ahead and finish me off. But just before he did, we were on the second floor of the building, 
we had our curtains open because we had plant painting in a dry L. Someone was coming in the back parking parking lot, and as they did, the lights shone up into our bedroom. With the curtains open, open, they illuminated the room. It was just a very bright light. And I could see, see it even though I was uh, laying in my bed with my eyes closed. At this point, I think Bundy thought he was seen. He ran out of our room, down the front stairs, and out the sorority front door. The headlights that spooked Bundy that night came from Nita Neary's boyfriend's car. He was dropping Nita off at the Chai Omega house after a date. When she walked in, she saw Ted running down the stairs and out the door. And that glimpse of the elusive killer made her the only eyewitness at his trial months later. In her interview with CBSN, Kathy described the aftermath of that attack. The physical uh, part of it was pretty, uh, pretty difficult. Since my jaw was shattered in three places, I had to have pins put in. Um, and my chin had to be uh, wired shut because there was no bone connected enough to go ahead and do the, uh, the pins in it. I uh, had my mouth wired shut for nine weeks, which meant I could only drink what came through a straw. And um, that was fun. I didn't um, get to enjoy as much food as everyone else did during that time. I continue to have TMJ really bad. I've had several operations over the years. Actually, I had one two years ago. So this is still an ongoing problem for me. I, um, I recuperated physically and emotionally because I didn't want to be defined as a survivor. I wanted to get through this to understand who he was and what he was. I've read every book I could find and watched all the movies because I didn't want this just to be a, a bad, scary thing. I wanted to put a face in a person. Then she focused on healing mentally. I wanted to talk it through because I think that helped heal me by getting it out of my system and, and just telling it so many times. It felt like it was more of a of something that happened and not something that happened to me because that was too scary to think about. So I made I made the decision to talk about it, to open my mind, to read about it because I wanted to be sure what Bundy was. He allowed people to see what he what he wanted them to see. He was very um, domineering and he was very manipulative and he he showed the world what he wanted. He was always in control. And I think part of that helped me to heal also because I understood the other side of him and how he hid that from other people. In an interview with Rolling Stone, she said she got a job as a cashier at a lumberyard three months later to help get over her fear of men, a sort of trial by fire situation. She figured working at a lumberyard would put her in contact with lots of guys. Three months after that, she married the boy she'd been dating. Mostly, it sounds like, because her parents wanted her to have round-the-clock protection. The marriage didn't last 10 years, but as it turned out, having a man around didn't save her from another brush with violence. She was robbed at gunpoint while working a new job as a bank teller. But hey, after surviving Bundy, a lousy bank robber wasn't going to stop her. She took the afternoon off, then reported to work as usual the next day, according to Rolling Stone. 
As for her roommate Karen Chandler, she told CBS 48 Hours she woke up in intensive care after the attack. Her skull was fractured, almost every bone in her face was broken. So was her arm and some of her fingers, but she was alive. And she went back to FSU and the Chi Omega house to finish her degree. But Bundy's reign of terror on January 15, 1978 wasn't finished. After being frightened away from the sorority house, he crawled through an open kitchen window in Cheryl Thomas's basement apartment a few blocks away. Police say Cheryl was probably his first intended victim that night. He may even have been stalking her for a week leading up to the attacks. She was a dance major at Florida State, and that night she went out to a disco, got home around midnight, ate a peanut butter sandwich, watched TV, and went to sleep. She woke up to the sight of Ted Bundy wearing a nylon stocking over his head with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. He beat her within an inch of her life and left her for dead on her bedroom floor. But she was stronger than he thought. This is Cheryl testifying against him at his trial in 1979, a year and a half after the attack. I had um, five skull fractures and multiple contusions in my head. And uh, because of the skull fractures, the eighth nerve was damaged and I lost the hearing in my left ear and the equilibrium. And um, I had a broken jaw. And my left shoulder was pulled out of joint. And I was just pretty bruised. She wasn't sure if she'd be able to dance again, but she retrained her body and went on to get her master's in dance from a university in Texas. And she started working with the hearing impaired to help teach them to dance through it. A month after the attacks, he was arrested. In the summer of 1979, he was sentenced to death. He refused to pick anything for a last meal, so they gave him the standard dead man walking option. Steak, eggs, toast with butter and jam, hash browns, coffee, and juice. He didn't touch a bite. He took his last seat in the electric chair on January 24, 1989 in Florida. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered in the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. And do you remember the infamous Volkswagen Beetle he used to lure some of his victims to their death? It's on display at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. I'm not sure how I feel about that, to be honest. Should that car have been destroyed? While you think about it, we need to check in with today's sponsor and we'll be right back. Between 1980 and 1982, the good people of Minneapolis, Minnesota were terrorized by a twisted serial killer with a bizarre trait, his voice. Paul Stefani was known as the weepy-voiced killer because of his habit of calling the police after his murders and the way his voice sounded when he did. You have to hear this. Please don't talk to this person. I'm sorry I killed that girl. You find me, I just stab somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. I'll hear that in my nightmares. He also had a strange trigger. All his victims were women wearing the color red. His first victim, Karen Patak, was beaten with a tire iron and left for dead on New Year's Day in 1981. As he was known to do, Paul Stefani called 911 and asked them to send help. Karen made it, but she lost her memory as a result. Five months later, he struck again, but his next victim wasn't so lucky. Her name was Kimberly Compton. She was stabbed with an ice pick and strangled with her shoelace. 
The next woman, Barbara Simmons, was also stabbed with an ice pick more than 40 times. And yes, she was wearing red, just like Kim and Karen. It was his last victim that stopped him in 1982, 19-year-old Denise Williams. On August 20th, 1982, he paid $100 to, quote, have some fun with her. But when he turned on to the wrong road, she knew something was wrong. Before she could get out of the car, he stabbed her in the stomach with a screwdriver. She fought back with everything she had, but he was in a wild frenzy, stabbing her 14 more times. Even as she was being attacked, she had the presence of mind to pick up a glass soda bottle she'd noticed on the passenger seat floor in front of her. She smashed it across his face and fell out of the car screaming. He'd pulled over on a dead-end road, but her screams attracted the attention of a man walking nearby. He ran over and tried to help, but Stefani chased him off with the screwdriver. But the distraction was enough to spook him. He drove away, leaving Denise for dead on the ground. Luckily, the witness called for help, and she was rescued. She escaped with her life, but she also managed to hurt Stefani enough so that he called for an ambulance when he got back to his apartment. He tried telling them he'd been mugged, but he was so upset that he sounded exactly like he did when he called the police after his crimes. And guess what? They recognized his creepy voice as that of the weepy voice killer. He was arrested, tried, and convicted. In 1997, at 53 years old, he found out he was dying from cancer. With less than a year to live, he confessed to yet another murder, that of Kathy Greening, who was found drowned in her bathtub in 1982. Police never even suspected him before he told them he did it. He died in prison in 1998, and Lord knows he might have gone on killing if it wasn't for his last intended victim, Denise Williams. And that's your recap. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new here and you like getting twice the crime in half the time, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give this podcast a five-star review. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us. Until next time, take care.